I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. The Race for the Ring, Episode 80, The Evolution of Love with Dr. Wendy Walsh. You're listening to The Race for the Ring. I am your host, Mindy Barnett. I'm an entrepreneur, motivational author, keynote speaker, television contributor, and a single mom. Since re-entering the dating world after my divorce, I found dating life eye-opening. In the age of Tinder, Bumble, and Hinge, there seems to be more horror stories and humor than happy endings among my friends and social circles. And I want to know why. Each week, we'll chat with a different dating queen or king, socialite or relationship expert, and explore the many facets of dating today, pitfalls to steer clear from, and how to find the finest fish in the sea. Get ready, set, go. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Race for the Ring. I had an amazing guest today. I'm so excited to share who is on deck for you. So her name is Wendy Walsh, and she comes to us with a very impressive background in broadcast journalism. Uh, She's won multiple awards in this space. Um, She's currently a radio host and podcaster at KFI. IAM 640 of iHeart Media and is the author of not one but three compelling best-selling books. She was named Time Magazine's Persons of the Year in 2017 after she spoke out about harassment at Fox News and she's currently teaching psychology at the department um the psychology department I should say at California State University Channel Islands. I know I have watched her beautiful face on Extra TV. Uh, she was a host there in earlier in her career after reporting at UPN News 13, where she won two Emmys, by the way, in the 90s. She also was tapped by um, Dr. Phil's producers and was a regular on the nationally syndicated show The Doctors, where she also was nominated for a Daytime Emmy Award. Award and is a regular on Don Lemon on CNN, The O'Reilly Factor, Fox News, HLN, NBC, CBS, and on and on and on. So her 
area of expertise specifically is about speaking about the evolution of love and evolutionary psychology specifically and the attachment theory, which I find really interesting. In fact, I'm reading a book about the attachment theory and why we as people, women and men, gravitate towards certain traits um, and qualities in a person, whether it makes us feel safe. Um, maybe it's somebody who feeds into our own issues if we have some sort of avoidance in our attachment uh, characteristics. And then she also takes it a step further in the ev- evolutionary psychology space to speak specifically about dating, going back to like, you know, the, the stone ages of why women um, traditionally look for certain traits in men and why men traditionally look for certain traits in women. So we're going to get into some of that and why. Um, It's a lot about aesthetics. It's a lot about what you bring to the table. And, um, you know, it really kind of uh, is interesting because you think guys tend to gravitate more towards a good looking girl. And you think that that guy is being shallow or what have you. And maybe they are. Or girls versus guys, but girls tend to um, traditionally gravitate more to a guy that is more able to support her financially and give her safety and things of that nature. And she's often coined the gold digger, but back to the guy. So the guy would basically be coined like shallow and, you know, um, you know, just uh, out for a trophy wife or what have you, but that's not necessarily the case. So she's going to get into us. It can get into that and talk to us a little bit about why that's so. And also, um, share a little light to say the least on the whole attachment situation. So let's get right into it with Dr. Wendy Walsh. Hi, Dr. Wendy. Thank you for joining us. It's such an honor to have you on the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Great. So let's get into, let's get right into it. First of all, why did you get drawn as a specialist, right, in the psychology space to this very niche area? And what exactly is um, evolutionary psychology in your professional opinion? I like to say that relationship science is a niche area in a very wide demographic because everybody has relationship issues, right? That they're trying to sort out. And the answer, how I became most interested in evolutionary psychology comes from my uh, study of attachment theory. And attachment theory, the ways that we attach across the lifespan is, you know, the founder of it is John Bowlby. You know, his inspiration was really Darwin and looking at a kind of um, how our personality is shaped through our attachments with early life caregivers. And then the interesting part for me is how that attachment with our early life caregivers becomes a model for love that we trot right out into our dating lives. And it we just imprint it onto our romantic attachment. So even if love early in life was filled with pain or longing, we will go out and find a partner who will make us feel that way because that's familiar to us. That is so crazy, but it makes such great sense. So if if I may just go backwards just a little bit to kind of further break it down for everyone listening who may not know, I know a little bit more than the average because I'm reading about it and I'm going back to school for this subject matter and all of the above. 
But I think like, okay, so I came from, I was very blessed. I had for the most part a very quote, I don't want to use the word normal, but I had a very solid childhood. My parents both gave me a foundation of safety um, and all of that. My mom, um, I remember like being around more when I was younger than my father because she didn't work at the time. And I remember being, I would be one that would go to like a sleepover party and I'd be so homesick and I would cry and I'd have to get picked. I was the kid that had to get <laughs> picked up in the middle of the night. I mean, that changed as I got older, but that probably went on to like maybe age like fourth grade or fifth grade. And I was kind of like, you, have a little, you were one of those babies who came into the world with a little more anxiety around separation and then right. more closeness. So did that set in because of something like maybe my mom did um, with my well, caregiver, like my well, caregiver? The important thing is okay. that our romantic attachment style is a combination of both things, genetic predisposition mm-hmm. and our kind of relationship with our early life caregivers from age zero to three, really, when the brain, okay. in the first year of life, when the brain is tripling in size and trying to decide whether it can trust the world or not. Mm. And so, um, if you happen to have been a baby that happened to be born with a gene for anxiety, and you happen to have parents who picked you up when you cried and didn't read a book that said, let them cry it out, it's good for their lungs, and they rocked you and cared and soothed you, that gene may not have been fully enlivened. Or if it was, you will seek out partners who also calm you, right? Now, Another baby could come into the world with that gene for anxiety and have neglectful parents or parents who couldn't, who couldn't tolerate the amount of screaming and would just close the door. Um, and then that gene would get to flourish. But in their adult life, they would go out and find people who create anxiety in them. It's crazy. Hmm. But it's true. Well, how do you fix it? Oh, that's a great answer. So we have a wide range of attachment styles, even though we can loosely put people into one of four categories. Um, The truth is that all across the lifespan, our brains are plastic and it is, they are changing in response to environmental triggers. The most impressive environment we have are our close intimate relationships. So there are three relationships according to data and science that can actually heal attachment injuries. One is the parent child relationship. If a parent, even if they've gone through divorces and multiple relationships, they still have children and they vow to do something different with their kids. If they vow to stay close to their kids, if they Mm -hmm. read all the, the right parenting books, then as they're soothing and healing their own child and saying words like, don't worry, daddy always comes home. Don't worry, mommy will be home soon. I'm with you. What do you need, baby? At the same time, there's another brain listening and that's the adult brain. So it's a form of self-consoling as we do right by our kids. Second relationship that can heal attachment injuries is if you're lucky enough, because on paper, they look good on their dating profile to be attracted to somebody who happens to have a secure attachment style. Mm. That person, if you've got anxious, so the the secure person is solid, they're straight up and down. The anxious person spins in and out, tries to create drama to make them run away because what they need is somebody to run after. And Mm. if the solid person just stays there and says, you're really cute when you do that. It's okay. Well, I'm here when you do that. The anxious person calms down. Or if the avoidant person who's running away and running away and the solid person doesn't chase back, they kind of go, wait, where'd they go? Where are they? And eventually they can calm down and come back. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> so the avoided person can kind of get corrected by a secure person? 
just Everybody like an can. anxious Everybody person get corrected by a secure person. <laughs> I didn't realize that. I thought I was, I thought the avoided, I didn't realize the avoided person could be corrected. Well, that's good news. Yeah. What I read um, a little bit is that the anxious person tends to um, unconsciously seek out the avoidant person. 100%. I guess it's because of what you're saying, right? They yeah, need to have. Talk about okay. the third relationship that heals. And then I want to come back to that question. Totally. It's okay, perfect. The third relationship, according to data that can heal attachment injuries is the therapist patient relationship. Now, it doesn't matter what degree your therapist has. If they are a marriage and family therapist, if they're a psychologist, if they're a psychiatrist, if they're a counselor, it is the consistency of the relationship. It is Mm -hmm. the fact that it's every Friday at 10 a.m. And when you're an anxious baby and try to change that around, come late, leave early, move the time, and they're able to what we call hold the therapeutic frame Mm-hmm. They act like the secure partner to your brain. And therapy is a way of reparenting ourselves and having a good parent there. Uh, so your question was, the anxious people, are they most often attracted to the avoidant person? Yes. And here's the worst part. They are most, that attraction is highly sexual. They have the mm-hmm. most around because that's where they're they're being ignited, right? Their passion is coming alive through their sexual attraction. So they will say, no, this person has to be the one. I'm just so attracted. It's so great. There's research to show that anxious people and avoidant people, for the anxious people anyway, have the best sex of their lifespan. But it's that also so true. Cool. With yeah, a band. I'll just say that. Yeah. It's a roller yeah. coaster relationship, right? It's yeah. sort of highs yeah. and lows and abandonment and loss and longing. Um, I try to tell anxious people this because I used to be anxious. So I know what it is to feel both. And I, I think my relationship with my children healed me. Seven years of psychoanalytic therapy healed me. Um, and I have a very secure relationship now. Secure attachment doesn't feel exciting. Secure attachment feels peaceful. It feels calm. It feels safe. It feels trustful. You just know that person has your back. You're not worried all the time that they're going to be running away. You're just... You just feel safe. And so that's less exciting for the anxious people that are used to those big, crazy highs. Yeah, I was going to say, that sounds kind of dull. So (laughs) clearly I'm anxious. Can you tell? Yeah, but it's Um, the best for our health. It's the best for our mental health and our physical health. You know, long-term committed people with healthy relationships actually have better mental health, better physical health. They live longer lives. It's correlated with longevity and they accumulate more wealth because nothing is more expensive than a habit of divorcing. Oh, a hundred percent. agree with that. I've been through that. Yeah, that's, and I was one of the lucky few. Um, So back to, I guess, your scenario and others like you, right? Do you get, do you have the same excitement? I mean, it's not the same excitement, but obviously with that foundation of love and foundation of security and the peace, do you, is the sexual chemistry there? It's a some shape or rock in sex life and we are six years old. Um, Because you don't look it, but that's awesome. When you take out the um, anxiety, you get to replace it with, real love and attachment. And that's something the anxious person has never really had. Right. That's true. That's very true. So I how did you- anxiety sex? Like if I don't have sex with this bad boy, he's going to leave me or I need him right now. Cause that'll make him like me. And then he won't leave. That's anxiety sex. Mm-hmm. That's not love. 
Love are mm-hmm. two partners pleasuring each other, laughing about it, giggling, having a great time, having mm-hmm. sometimes quickies, sometimes long time, you know, just being having great sexual communication, knowing how to add novelty and variety and talking about that. Mm-hmm. That's a healthy sex life. How did you allow yourself to to basically be open to the secure partner and embrace that? I went through all the steps that I preach to everybody. I should tell you today is a very special day because I'm opening for the first time in my life a Patreon page. And you can oh. find me at patreon.com slash Dr. Wendy Walsh, where we are going to have private, smaller, live focus groups with all kinds of men and women who are dealing with attachment injuries. Oh, that's um, fantastic. Okay. We'll include a link in the yeah. show notes. Okay. Yeah, that's good. Thank you. Okay. Patreon.com slash Dr. Wendy Walsh. Um, so here, you, you may have heard this wonderful metaphor before. There are four stages to personal change. Stage one is you're walking down the street, you don't see a hole, and you fall in it. Let's call that hole the avoidant person, the inappropriate partner, the bad boy, the bad girl, whatever. You have your own anxious attachment style. You don't see it, you fall in it. You just read the dating profile and go, oh, they just seem great. But you don't see the hole. You're not reading what they're really doing attachment-wise. Stage two is now you realize your attachment style and you realize what you're unconsciously attracted to. So now you're walking down the street, you see the hole, you recognize that hole and you fall in it. Why? Stage that's stage two, because you haven't changed yet. You've just learned to recognize it. You still okay. fall in it. You think, oh, okay. now that I recognize I'm anxious, I'm cured. No, you have to actually take some different steps to change. Mm-hmm. Stage mm-hmm. two, you follow the hole, even though you recognize it. Stage three is you're walking down the street. This time you see the hole, you recognize the hole, and you very carefully walk around that hole. But stage four, you take a different street. So my stage three was about, well, let's go back to stage two. So stage two, recognizing it and still meeting guys that were avoidant and going, "Mm, yeah, but this one's different. I rationalize it, whatever. But the point I grew because even though I fell in the hole, rather than me going, I've got to analyze him. I've got to figure out what's wrong with him and what does he need? Instead, I went, what did I miss? What did I need to learn here? And I will say, I want to say it was about maybe 10 years ago. My last big bad boy was a very famous writer and he was so smart. And I thought, well, if he's smart, he can't be like one of those yeah, athlete actors. He can't actors. be like the others. Right. <laughs> Different kind of, of avoidant, right? And I remember when it happened and he kind of ghosted me after a, a great time of great intimacy. Ugh. I allowed myself to go through the depression that was necessary to come through the other side. Instead of running, going into a frenzy of what can I do or say to get him to come back? Or can I replace him with somebody else so I don't feel these bad feelings? Mm-hmm. I literally stayed in bed almost three weeks crying. Oh my gosh, I, you did? Yeah, I was in touch with my therapist daily. I just allowed myself to deal with the loss because you know what he was? He was a convenient object for something that happened way back in my past that I hadn't grieved over. Uh And so when I took the time to finally grieve and go, it's not about him. It's not about all the bad boys out there. It's about me and my need to feel this anxiety. Uh And when I instead grieved the losses 
that happened to me in my early life, then I felt safer. So then, so now we talk about walking around the hole, right? So walking around the hole, seeing it and basically ghosting guys earlier. They send you a few texts. They're not really consistent. And you're like, oh, that's a sign of an avoidant person. Get rid of them. Get rid of them. And then right. for me, it was learning to say no earlier and not getting in love with hope, but getting in love with the reality. Okay. Can you explain the difference? Because that's very profound. And I think a lot of people, myself included, um, especially in the past, I think I'm sort of walking around the hole now. I'm not quite taking the other road yet. <laughs> but yeah. um, but I, I think a lot of people so fall in, in love, love with the hope. idea, the idea or the promises that aren't necessarily, yeah. like, it's what they show up as that you need to be yeah. mindful of, right? Okay. Can you- How okay. we rationalize their bad behavior. We say, you know, he really was working a lot and he couldn't have called me because they didn't have phones at that stadium. <laughs> we say that. He's in another compartment and go in compartments. That's why he didn't call. Right. Um, and so we rationalize their bad behavior. We dismiss uh-huh. our own feelings of longing or we say, you know, maybe I'm overreacting. Maybe I really shouldn't. I don't need, maybe I'm needy. Maybe I should not be so needy. Right. And my answer is no, no, no. Get deep into your needs. Get yeah. deep in your needs, understand your needs, understand where they belong. It's not actually anybody else's job to meet our needs. It's us to heal ourselves first. So then I tried something new as I was walking around the hall. So firstly, I would get rid of anybody who gave me a red flag very early, very quickly. And dating apps are so helpful because you don't really have to invest much. A couple phone conversations. You're like, no, I'm not even meeting for a coffee. I can tell. I totally. Up- That's exactly what had This guy was so needy. I'm like, oh, we're done. <laughs> right. So here's the next thing. So that's the avoidant. It's hard to walk away from the avoidant. It's easy to walk away from the needy one, right? Because the other side of anxious attachment is a fear of engulfment. Mm -hmm. You see, anxious people are often deeply avoidant of intimacy. So what they do is they attract themselves to avoidant people and blame them for their problems. But meeting a quote unquote needy person with your own vulnerability and authenticity is terrifying. So Mm -hmm. after doing the red, getting rid of them early, the avoidant ones, then I said, okay, now, uh, now I'm going to try to learn how to be attracted to a nice guy. And when these nice guys come into my life, I am going to listen closely. I am going to learn to tolerate kindness. Mm Mm-hmm. Just think of how often women say, mm, he's too nice. You know, he's too available, right? There's no challenge. I really like yes, challenge. Yes, that's my go-to. Just, I need a challenge. Yeah. You know? how anxious people find their avoidant people. But mm. what if he's just a human being who's being real and authentic and you're imagining that he's too needy? So then came the stage of walking around the needy hole and deciding who really had an anxious attachment style and who was pretty secure. And so Mm -hmm. I did date a guy for a while and, you know, a year into it, I was like, wait a minute, he's always mad at me that I'm less emotionally available. I've become the avoidant one in this relationship. (laughs) That's not a safe place. It's because Mm -hmm. his anxiety around attachment is forcing me to be closed. Right. Mm. And so eventually I met somebody who was very authentic. I love the line he put in his dating profile. He what said, was it? Do you remember? Yeah. Oh, I'll never forget it. It was one sentence and it was this, I have been on a dramatic path 
toward authenticity and mindfulness. Wow. Yeah, that probably definitely resonated with you. There's some drama there. Um, And on our first coffee, I unconsciously, never done this before, said, this is after two phone calls, first coffee, uh, during COVID, masks on, 10 feet away. Oh, wow. This is a new relationship. Okay. We just celebrated our first anniversary. Oh, that's so sweet. Okay, great. Let's do something different. Instead of trying to convince the person that we're so dateable, why don't we tell the one reason why we're not dateable? And you That's not awesome. Do that. So what did you both say? Do you remember? Well, my I'm first sorry. story was, I said, there's actually two reasons you should know. I am 60 years old. I have now outlived both of my parents. I carry genes for early dying, but don't worry. Oh, I've wow. got a lot of doctors around me. And he's like, <laughs> and the second thing I said is, look, I have one kid that graduated Harvard, but I have another one who's a little on the autism spectrum, who's probably going to be in my nest for a few more years. So I'm not actually single. It's a two pack. So oh, those wow. are, those are the, my two things. And he said, okay, well, I only have one and it's a really big one. And, um, I won't share all the details with you, but you should know it involved a little prison time. So I, and most women went running when they heard that story, but I wanted to hear every detail. Of course, I know the inequities in our judicial system. I know the biases as a court reporter for many years, I sat in courtrooms. Mm -hmm. Uh, My children are both African-American. I know Mm -hmm. about Black Lives Matter and I know about the unfair justice system towards any person of color or Latino. He happens to be Latino. Mm -hmm. And um, I, you know, I just, he said to me later, you were the first person who was just open to understanding and hearing more. That's awesome. um, But the main thing that you know, is kind of the glue for us besides being emotionally honest with each other, but we have no secrets. We're like best friends. We tell each other everything we read. We finish each other's sentence. We read each other's minds um, is that he's super bright. And one of my other problems is that it was really difficult trying to find an intellectual peer. And I was sitting at these dinner tables trying so hard not to roll my eyes (laughs) <laughs> I hear you. No, that's one of my issues. Too. I want, I want someone I, that's what stimulate. They have to be physically attractive and kind. Well, in theory, kind for me still, yes. but, but also like that, I like that intellectual stimulation. I need someone that yeah, raises that me so up to want to be me. more. Yeah, me too. Yeah. 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 Then, you know, I would date these kind of nerdy Asperger's who were brilliant, but had no emotional intelligence. Right. So yeah, uh, it was, that was not working for me either, but to find somebody who was secure uh, very able to express his feelings and vulnerabilities and authenticities. And um, we're just, we're, we just count our blessing every day. We say, Oh my God, we're so lucky. We're so lucky. We're so lucky. That's so it, wonderful. You know, I had a first date. I briefly mentioned this to you before we started recording, but I had a first date with this guy yesterday who's been so nice. Like um, we met online, which um, is not my favorite form of meeting a new person, but it is what it is sometimes with that because it's hard not to participate in that a little bit. Um, But that said, we met um, and he was just like, he's very attractive, very smart, um, kind of checks all the boxes that I initially have. But he, he seems just very there he's not um like overly anxious like texting me at all times of day or you know constantly which i kind of like but he's also 
nice. He just seems like normal and nice. Asked me on another date. I'm definitely going to go. You know, it was kind. So I was very open minded because of my mindfulness with the whole attachment, you know, situation that I should give him a real shot because Mm -hmm. I normally would be like, time for attachment style to reveal itself. And it's always in the tiny little details, right? So some women will perceive a guy to be nice and kind because he's sending a morning text. Good morning. How are you? And a late night text. How are you doing? I'm just thinking yeah. about how good sleep, but actually he has an anxious attachment style. He's controlling. He wants to find out where you are. And if you're answering somebody right. with a secure attachment style can give you your space early on. Right. Right. And because they're and, not afraid that you're going to disappear. Right. I, which I kind of like normally yeah. I'd be like, right. I don't like the when they question text is, all the time. is someone loving out of love or out of fear? Are mm. they doing kind things because they're afraid you'll leave? Or are they doing kind things just because they love themselves and want to share that love with you? That's a good point. Well, this dude's so early, I can't tell. But in general, I think that's important for our listeners to know. Can you give the dif- can you give us some examples how we can tell the difference? Is there a way that we can differentiate as uh, as the recipient? If or is that they, just something you learn like no, through time? If they're trying to do something kind for you, and you set a boundary because it feels intrusive, and mm-hmm. they get angry, you know it's an anxious attachment style. It's not mm-hmm. love. Right. Mm -hmm. Somebody who gives love doesn't want to be intrusive. They want to know where your boundaries are. I always say at the very beginning, you have to give somebody, everybody, a tiny little boundary. So the boundary might be, I'd rather call instead of text. Please call me. Or, uh, you know, my nickname is this. Just call me by my nickname. Everyone calls me that. Or, um, you know, if you don't mind, I'd like to bring my own car to meet you for a few times. If mm-hmm. they balk at any of those things, you tell them to call you and they keep texting. You, you tell them your nickname and they say, no, I like Elizabeth, not Beth. You're going to be my Elizabeth. Really? That's what I've, <laughs> an object you've just created for you, right? Uh, if you say, no, I insist on picking you up. That's what gentlemen do. No, that's controlling. Somebody with a secure attachment style says, cool. I'll meet mm-hmm. you at your level of needs. I'll respect your needs and your boundaries. So mm-hmm. everybody should give new dates some test boundaries. Small stuff. Okay. Just just to see what you what see how they react. But the what other they thing show is up as when yeah. they get a little mad about no, I insist. Gentlemen should bring a car. You now have to ghost. You have to be done. Like that's the early red flag. Right. 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 Not wasting so their time and move on. Right. Some people may need three examples of it. Okay, fine. But once you see three examples of it and you're feeling like you are not, you don't have a voice and you're not being respected, you got to let them go. And that's the hard part because we stay in love with hope. We are in love with longing. We want to have that feeling of longing because the feeling of longing to us, to people with an anxious attachment though, is love. You will hear anxious people go, Oh, do you get butterflies in your stomach? That's not love. That's anxiety. I know. It's so true. I know. 
It's true. A lot of people confuse the two. It's not, it's not love at all. Yeah. And some of us just have to learn the hard way, but that is what it is, right? But at least we learn and love and move forward, right? There's no mistakes. There's only lessons. There's no mistakes. And and also there's no time clock on this, right? You can change at any stage of the lifespan. Mm -hmm. And you can say, I can't believe even after I listened to Dr. Wendy, I went out with three more playboys and got my heart broken. Um, But then that fourth one is that time is your time when you go, "Mm -mm, I recognize this. I'm out of here. That's so true. So true. Well, we're sadly out of time, but let's tell everybody, I'm going to include your, your link in our show notes. Cause I think that's a really great place for everyone to start, especially yeah. since seeing a solid therapist is one of the ways we can heal ourselves. And if you don't yeah. have a therapist, that's a really good way to get mo- moving in that direction. And here's the great sure. news. My tiers on Patreon start at $4 a month. So oh, that's amazing. Month, you can come on. I'm going to do weekly live streams, which are like kind of group therapy. Um, I send an article every single day. I do a drawing once a week for a one-on-one private phone session with me. Oh, that's so, amazing. So sign up. Buy the whole year, you get a 15% discount. Why not? Yeah, I'm going to sign up because I want to, I'm just curious to see everything you have to say. Thank you. Our so. first live stream is tonight at 6.30 p.m. Pacific time. Oh, this is live. I don't know when this is Pacific? Well, this is going to air. It's going to air tomorrow. Okay. <laughs> this is Wednesday. Wednesday. It's going to air. Yeah. Probably but for Wednesday. the next, for the next one, for sure. All right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Um, nice we will you. include all of your contact information in the show notes. So everybody go there and, and, and check out Dr. Wendy. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Race for the Ring. If you liked today's episode, please write us a review. They can make or break a good podcast, just like a dull dude can be the kiss of death to a date. I'll catch you next week. And in the meantime, be sure to say hi and follow me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. My handles and contacts are in the show notes. It's been my pleasure to have you along for today's dating debate. Bye-bye.